This is Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 4. It says, The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I have offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. There are certain themes that we've been looking at in the book of Isaiah. We've in, been in particular looking at verse, uh, chapters 40 through 55, excuse me. Uh, the first theme is exile. We've talked a lot about this throughout our 20-week study in the book up to this point. Israel has been uh, removed from the land. They've been taken into Babylonian captivity, removed from the land, and as that's happening, the promises that were given to Israel as a people have been called into question. People begin to wonder if God is still their God, if they are still in relationship, if the promises that he once committed to his people are still good, or if they have botched them up and if they're, they're no longer there. This theme of exile is prevalent all throughout, specifically these chapters 40 through 55, because this is like the aftermath of that where Israel is trying to reacclimate themselves in a foreign land, looking around and seeing foreign gods all around them. And again, the dominant threat was the foreign gods are the ones that actually do things. Their God doesn't do things anymore because he didn't stick up for them and they lost their land and their relationship, at least in their mind. The poet comes in very early in Isaiah 40 and says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. This message is one that's very much conflicting with the context in which they're in, one of suffering, one of lament, one of difficulty. And the poet says, there's comfort for you. This comfort revolves around an idea of rescue where God is claiming to, to working in the political landscape of the time to bring his people back to the land. It's as if he has a plan for them and has had a plan for them this whole time. That plan at this stage involves comfort and it involves rescue. But we've seen throughout the mindset of Israel as we see it in Isaiah 40 through 55 is one of doubt and pessimism and questioning. Remember, their context is they're in the hospital room. They're by the graveside. They're signing the divorce papers. Like they're in the lowest of the low in their lives and they're trying to make sense of it and then you have some guy show up saying comfort my people God's going to do a great work to which they say no he's not he's given up on us he's gone this is over the message of the poet which is one of great hope and great inspiration and comfort and rescue is received with doubt from the people we've seen that God has a plan and that plan involves unlikely characters one of which is Cyrus Cyrus the pagan the Persian the one who would defeat Babylon according to God. The one who is described as 
God's Mashiach, his Messiah, his anointed one, is a non-Israelite, which for the Old Testament, that was something completely unheard of. And as the people that were hearing the poet talk about these messages from God, they would say, that can't be true. No way, no how, never. God would not use somebody who's not one of us to do his will and to get his plan to fruition. His plan also includes a servant, as we've seen through a couple different servant songs already in the first few chapters. We've seen how God is taking Israel as a corporate people and then slowly whittling them down to one individual. We've seen this in Isaiah 42. This is the first of the servant songs, which looks at this individual great focus and attention. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jump down to verse four. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. This theme of justice continues on. In verse six, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Completely ridiculous at this phase in in history for God to be working in this way, but the servant is going to be uh, establishing a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. In verse seven, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. This first servant song here, God's saying there's going to be an individual. There's going to be someone who represents corporate Israel and brings about justice. That's the whole job to bring about justice for a people that at least in their mind have uh, suffered through complete and utter injustice, to open up eyes that are blind and to free captives from prison. In Isaiah 49, similar themes come out and here we really see this narrowing down to a particular individual. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. This is really going beyond Israel as a people and looking at an individual person here. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Verse three, he said to me, you are my servant. Some people would translate this, you are Israel in whom I will display my splendor. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. This job for the servant now is going beyond just establishing justice and it's saying this individual will fight for Israel and will bring Israel back, not just in the sense of taking them back to the land that they once lived in, but bringing them back to relationship with their God. All throughout Isaiah, we've just seen depressing notes of Israel not doing what they're supposed to be doing. In chapter one, we hear God saying, take your feasts, take your festivals, take your songs and your prayers and get out of my face. You don't mean them, you don't care, just stop. And now here we see God working through one individual to bring them back where their prayers and their worship and their songs and their festivals are actually meaningful because they understand what it is that they do. I think that we could pause there for a moment and and self-assess. That chapter right now scares me to death because I'm the guy that stands in front of the room and tries to talk about this 
and tries to inspire people. And I often wonder if God's saying, stop what you're doing because you don't get it. You're too busy doing these other things and you've forsaken me. We live in a world now where it's go, 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 whether it's kids, work, school, other job, other school, all these things that come piling together and it's as if God gets the scraps of our time at the end of the day. Sometimes I wonder if that call is, is still uh, for us to hear, get all this stuff and just stop. The, the servant here is bringing Israel back to the land, yes, but also to, to right relationship with God. And again in verse six, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. In Isaiah, this is like blowing the doors wide open because all throughout the Old Testament, it's about Israel. But Israel had a job to do. Israel's job was to be a light to the nations and expose people outside of their own ethnic and religious identity to see who God is. And they oftentimes failed miserably in that. So that's the second servant song. We've seen this theme of justice. and We've seen this uh, theme of bringing Israel back, uh, being a light to the, to the Gentiles. And now in Isaiah 50, verses four through nine, the poet shifts his attention once again to the servant. I have three themes that are all put together around this rhetorical device where the poet says, the sovereign Lord. And then he gives us a verb here. In verse four, it says, the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue. You can see this image that's constructed here of the servant as one of student and teacher. It's not just king and servant, but it's one where God is instructing the servant daily. It says that he wakens me morning by morning. He wakens me, uh, my ear to listen like one being instructed. The image is one who gets up in devotion every day early in the morning to hear what God is telling him over and over to be instructed in these words so that he can sustain the weary with these words. It says the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. This word that sustains the weary is the one that the poet has been talking about from chapters 40 up until this present moment where it's a theme of hope, it's a theme of rescue, it's a theme of redemption. And ultimately it's a theme that says God is good, God is loving, and God has not neglected you. Last week we looked at it. He's not signed the divorce papers. He's not cast you out to be a bondservant. He's still fighting for this relationship. This is the word that sustains the weary. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorites, says, the sustaining word to the weary is not just any pastoral word. It is a word energizing the exiles to their own distinctive identity in a context where that identity is at risk. In this context, Israel's identity is at risk because their circumstance reflects one where God has abandoned them, where God is not present in their life anymore and they don't know who they are as a result of that. I think that this begs the question, what puts our identity at risk? If there are certain things that take place that make us call into question who God is, what might those things be? And they can be as mundane as not feeling God, not experiencing God, to as devastating as loss, death, suffering, health issues. All of the things that we go through on a day-to-day basis have the potential to call our identity into question. 
but it's important for us to figure out how we reorient ourselves. And from this text, we see that there's a word that sustains the weary. In Isaiah, that word was, God is good, God is loving, God is present. In our context, I think that it's the same. God is good, God is loving, God is present. But at times, we all know that those words feel so hollow. I think it's important for us to look into this text and see if there are things even now where we don't know who we are anymore and we don't know if God is even one who exists and if he even cares. Walter Brueggemann's quote takes some pressure off of me because I always feel in moments where people are going through things that I have to have the right words to say, you know? Like I could just show up and make sense of the world for people that are going through difficult times. I have so many students that just, either through essays or through conversations, the things that they go through are heavy. And I'm always dying on the inside to have that right thing to say. And what I've learned from this text is it's just about reflecting Christ and reorienting people back to, to God himself. The second thing is the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I've offered my back to those who beat me. Uh, We see here that the servant has learned how to listen. In our context, because we are go, go, go 24-7, it's almost like we're scared of silence. My wife and I like to take up residence on our couch. It's a nice little sectional. I have my side. She has her side, and we like to watch TV shows together, and I'll be sitting there. She'll be watching a show, and like when when nothing's happening, I'll pick up my phone and just fiddle on most days, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, and this last week, I had a breakthrough where it's like, if I'm just sitting there, that is like my security blanket now. It helps me to focus in on, on nothing and just look around and see what people are up to and be a weird creeper. (laughs) But it's like, if I have to think my own thoughts, I try to mute them as quickly as possible. If we sit in silence and hear our own mind and our own doubts and our own skepticism, and it freaks us out sometimes. And we like to fill it immediately. The poet here is one that gets up religiously. And here I'm not promoting like you guys getting up at 4 a.m. to start reading your Bibles and praying every day because you'll grow, grow, grow. Sneak that in there for the church folks if you got that. Way to go. He's learned how to listen, not just in the sense of being devoted, but one who is actually attuned to what God is saying. That sounds so spiritual. I think for us, it's, it's being attuned to what God is saying, knowing how to listen, and then also learning how to imagine because what God often tells us, and don't, this is, I'm not trying to get super crazy here, what God often tells us is he's creating a different vision of the world in contrast to the one that we live in. In the Psalms, for example, it talks about blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scorners or listen to the mockers, all that thing, because that person, the righteous person, will be blessed the wicked person will not be blessed. In our context, though, that doesn't work out. And all throughout the Psalms, we see that not working out consistently where the Israelites are praying these laments where they say, our enemies are all around us. You know that bit in Psalm 1 where the good guys win and the bad guys lose? That's not real. That's not happening. And the psalmist keeps painting this picture, bringing people back to a vision that God has of the world. 
I care about you, I love you, I'm with you. And sometimes that's the mantra that we keep saying to ourselves when life doesn't reflect that at all. And what the servant is saying, he's learned how to imagine that God is still with his people in the midst of suffering, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of suffering. The poet knows how to listen, he also knows how to imagine, and he knows how to accept it, and he also knows how to obey. It says, I have not been rebellious, I have not turned away. This person, in the midst of all obstacles, is saying, I will trust in you and this message that you're giving us, even though it doesn't look like it's happening. That one's tough because you can see in the next couple verses that that obedience, that call to listen and imagine and obey, is costing the servant something because nobody likes that message. He shows up and says, comfort my people. God is going to show up. And they say, yeah, right, get out of my face. And he's suffered something for speaking this message. It says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. This person suffers for the sake of this message. He's faced the consequences that go along with being obedient, and he's, he's sustained it. Thirdly, uh, verse 7, it says, The sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. The Lord helps and this inspires resolve in the mind of the servant. We see this throughout the next few verses where it says, he who vindicates me is near in verse eight. Who then will bring charges against me? And again, this is uh, the poet tapping into these kind of courtroom images where there's this trial between one party and another party. We've seen the trial between God and other rival gods. We've seen trial against God and Israel. And we've seen now a trial against the nations or the people and the servant here says who is my accuser who will condemn me basically all these things don't mean that much to me because i know that my god is helping me don't think of help in the sense of somebody who helps you fold laundry or helps you do the dishes i mean he's like showing up to do the work and here it's causing the servant to have this resolve where they actually believe that god is going to do great things there's many things that we can learn from the servant. First, we can learn dedication. I think this is really us reading into the text a bit, but yeah, the fact that he's awakened every morning by God to, to hear this message and to be instructed by that, to accept it, to learn it. We can see that there's this dedication. We can see there's this obedience in the life of, of the servant where he's willing to give whatever he has and suffer for it. Servant is obedient, but the servant also has imagination where he's seeing the world painted in a different brush. It doesn't look like the world that he is currently inhabiting, but it's the world that could be. It's all the things that could happen in the future because God is working through this person. We've also seen the servant as one who withstands suffering, turning his back to his oppressors, turning his cheek so they can rip out his beard. We also see confidence in this person that that kind of stuff doesn't matter. The things that he goes through in daily life, it doesn't matter because he's got God and he's completely tied to that relationship and he believes in it and he's not going anywhere anytime soon. But when we read the text that way, we forsake its historical context, and I think that that's almost a bad reading. If we just looked at the servant and started picking out these good moral attributes and applying them to our lives, I think that we misread the text. The servant fulfills an important role in his own context, one where he is leading Israel in a sense to accept this message of redemption and hope and life. We see how God says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus to, to bring you guys out of bondage, and he actually does that. 
the message that the poet is teaching is one that's true. This is a more important thing in my mind. The servant also points us to Jesus. This servant song means nothing if we don't connect it to Christ. This servant song is just a good guy in 580s BC that has some moral attributes, but if we don't see how this foreshadows Jesus, I think we miss it. In Isaiah 42, which is the first of the the four servant songs, the servant is bringing justice. When Jesus shows up, he preaches a sermon in his own hometown in Luke chapter four, quoting this text more or less, saying the spirit of God is on me to bring good news, to release captives, to set the oppressed free. Jesus embodies that whittling down to one person where he becomes the very thing that all of humanity has always needed. The one who brings about justice in a, in a real and lasting way. And in Isaiah 49, we hear that he's gonna bring God's people back and we can see how Jesus, through his sinless life, his death and his resurrection, bring people back. The reason why most of us are here is because he has brought us back. We've seen that to be true in our own lives. And now in Isaiah 50, we see that this servant is going to suffer and we see how that's fulfilled in Jesus himself. Now, the reason why this is important, we can talk about the gospel all day and say that everything that we have should be focused on this death and resurrection of Jesus. The reason why this is important for us, seeing Jesus as the servant, is because as a result of that, we're able to have comfort, to be rescued, and to live with confidence. The very things that the servant was trying to inspire in the lives of the people in the sixth century BC are the things that still remain today because of Jesus, because he's the servant, because he's fulfilling all these things. You're able to have life you're able to have life to the full, you're able to have hope, you're able to have confidence, you're able to be rescued. That does not mean that every sickness will be healed. It does not mean that every relationship will be fixed. It does not mean that every bill will be paid on time and in full. But it means that Jesus has defeated sin and death and allows us to have life so that we can too say like the servant, whether you beat my back or you pluck out my beard, I'm not going anywhere. Having that level of devotion in the midst of suffering, I think, is only possible when it's grounded and rooted in Christ. I want to close with this text because this is how it plays out for us. In Romans chapter 8, this is a very misquoted text on most days. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it. I just want to read read some verses to you. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And understand, for some of us, that's where we lack the imagination because we say, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. God does not work out all things. God is not involved. God is not present in my life. We hear the author of Romans here, Paul, saying, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Everything centers on the cross and the empty tomb. And in that act, we're able to have confidence, we're able to have hope, we're able to have life. I beg you, regardless of what your life looks like, regardless of the exile that you are in at this moment, understand that with Christ there's hope, there's love, there's mercy, regardless of circumstance. We, just like that sixth century Israelite audience, have the opportunity to accept that message like the servant, to base our life on it, to dedicate ourselves to it, to be obedient because of it, to be confident through it, or to doubt it, to be pessimistic, to be skeptical, to question it. I hope that regardless of circumstance, you do experience Jesus in a very real way because with Jesus there is life. With Jesus there is hope and with Jesus there is confidence regardless of circumstance.